Update. Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. A record of the delightful piece they're going to play this evening.
So welcome to the Truth to Power Show, Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and uh, we're waiting on our guest. But with me today is uh, guest co-host Claire Van Winkle of Rockaway Writers Workshop. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, yeah, so we'll just talk a little bit as our guest comes, uh, arrives. Um, so I think we'll start off with just talking a little bit about uh, some... An upcoming event, upcoming perhaps. Events. Yeah, yeah. So um, I just wanted to... Uh, give a shout out to my co-host VJ here because he's about to release, um, what is it, your second book? Second book, yeah. Second book of poems, um, Celebrity Sadhana. And I am happy to announce that Rockaway Writers Workshop will be sponsoring a book release party um, at Rockaway Love Yoga Studio at 90-02 Rockaway Beach Boulevard. Um, The event is free. Uh, We'll be taking donations, but anyone and everyone is free to join us. There will be a reading, book signing, 
and book sale followed by a reception at Sarah's Wine Bar. You have to pay for your wine, but (laughs) you can come enjoy the work. So congrats, VJ. And that's going to be at six o'clock. We hope to see all of you there. Exciting time. Exciting time. And uh, I'll also be reading at uh, Central Library at 8911 Merrick Boulevard doing a signing and uh, you can get copies of the book a little bit earlier than the official release. Uh, Amazon has it released on Amazon and a lot of the online retailers have it released on October 28th. But um, you can get copies of it on October 20th when I'll be uh, doing a book signing and uh, talking to readers and such. Yeah. And for any information on upcoming Rockaway Writers Workshop events, you can visit rockawaywritersworkshop.org or follow us on Facebook where uh, lovely writers like VJ continuously post their events and goings on. Yeah, yeah. And also you can follow me on VJR Nathan Poet on Facebook. And um, I think a handle for, uh, what is it? Uh, Twitter is Truth2PowerShow with the two number two in there. I don't know what our Twitter handle is. Twitter, yeah, I don't understand yeah. Twitter. Yeah. I like pen and paper. The exactly. social media shit just drives me nuts. I just link them so that <laughs> when I post uh, yeah. to Twitter, I don't have to worry about. Shh, you're yeah. gonna tell. You're gonna tell all of our listeners the <laughs> secret that all of our social media posts are the same. Yeah. Then they're not gonna check Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. But anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna use this time, VJ, uh-huh. to ask you a question. Okay. What inspired Celebrity Sadhana? So um, I had received a 2017 New Works grant from Queen's Arts Council, and I actually proposed it to them as um, kind of a continuation on the themes of uh, Escape from Samsara, which basically is meditative poetry. And then I decided to, um, I decided to uh, include celebrities into it. And it was, it was an interesting process, just trying to play with that. But now, uh, now we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but uh, give, give us a moment while we... Uh, Selling our guests for today. Uh, great. Welcome. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Thank you. So let me pull you up. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, this is our guest today is Joanna C. Valente, who is, uh, let me read from this uh, bio. Um, Joanna C. Valente is a human who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and is author of Sirs and Madames, The Gods Are Dead. Zenos and uh, Marys of the Sea, as well as Sexting Ghosts, which is a 2018 release. Uh, they are uh, editor of A Shadow Map, an anthology of survivors of sexual assault. Joanna received an MFA in writing at Sarah Lawrence College and is also the founder of Yes Poetry, a managing editor for Lula Lula, Luna Luna uh, magazine at C- and CCM, as well as an instructor at Brooklyn Post, where we met in uh, uh, class surreal poetry. Yes. Uh, some of their uh, writings has appeared in Brooklyn Magazine, Prelude, Apaji, Spork, and the Feminist Wire, Boston, elsewhere. Welcome, welcome. Welcome. Good morning. Thank Good you. Morning. Thank you for having me here. Great, great. So, um, yeah, you, you had a little bit of a trouble getting here. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and I was coming from deep, like South Brooklyn, and just like from like Sunset Park to here. Mm. Is Ironically, of... Columbus Day is a bad day to travel. Yeah, yeah. That too. <laughs> so I just ended up like getting out of the subway and taking a cab because I was like, then I'll just never yeah. get here. Yeah. yeah. Also, on the LIE too, when I was driving over, suddenly it was so much traffic. I didn't expect that in Columbus I wasn't day. either. Actually, it was 
kind of expecting the opposite. But yeah. like, the A train, <laughs> the A train from Rockaway was kind of awesome. So yeah. I'm just for once sitting here, not stressed out <laughs> yeah. at eight o'clock in the morning. But yeah, Rockaway is topsy turvy all the time anyway. Great, great. <laughs> so why don't we dive in, uh, Joanna? Why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about your artistic concerns and themes of your work? Uh, you know, the new book, as I mentioned, was Sex and Ghosts, but you have, I, I also prepared by reading uh, Marys of the Sea, which is the 2017 book. Uh, so if you talk a little bit about the themes and, and recurring uh, artistic concerns, yeah. Yeah, of course. So I think for me, I was always really obsessed with telling stories of some kind. So every one of my books has like a different narrative, I would say. Um so everything is, it's kind of like a concept album. So when I actually explain this to people, I, I usually just say that I'm like making these kind of poetry books that have like concepts. And whenever that is, I really fit in that narrative each time. And every single book has a new like structural challenge. So they're all kind of different, which I think is kind of funny because I know I definitely have an aesthetic, but I also think like it can be hard to predict but like thematically, I do definitely have very similar themes with all of my books. Like I am always very focused on gender and sexuality and kind of exploring the nuances between those and, you know, growing up queer and what does that mean? So like with Sex and Ghosts in particular, it actually really focuses on gender um, and gender identity. So, you know, I identify as non-binary, so... For me, like I was really kind of like working through that and the last two essays in the book, because I included two essays, really focus on like what it means to be transgender or non-binary. Um, and this book also like it starts out with an interview format. So like I'm interviewing different members of the family, mostly to kind of see and parse through how that affects how you identify and then kind of moves through these different formats in particular, like all of these different god poems as i sort of call them to kind of like branch together like spirituality family dynamics and like the modern age because you know technology is also super important in that book hence the title sexting ghosts mm. um but in my other books like mary's of the sea it's a little less concerned with like technology for instance and more concerned with what i would say like gender and sexual violence because Mary's of the Sea really focuses on like abortion and sexual assault. So I kind of explore, I guess, different facets of these themes basically throughout my work. When you're um, in the process of writing, do you write your ongoing work with the thought of a collection in mind? Or do you generate work and see a collection merging out, emerging from that body of work? Sure. I think I do both, actually. And I think sometimes it depends. But I think... Like with Mary's of the Sea, I think I definitely did. I had an idea and I wanted to execute it. So I was writing poems specifically in that style for that book. But I don't always do that because then actually for Sexting Ghosts, I didn't actually plan this book at all. Like what happened was that I wrote all of these different poems. So I was writing these interview poems and I was writing these like God poems and then I was approached to do a book with the press that it's published through Unknown Press. And I ended up like just thinking about all of the poems that I had that weren't published. And I was like, these are all so similar, even though they're in such different formats. So then I started to write more poems to kind of bridge both of those like separate collections together and see like what would happen when I merged them. So sometimes it's kind of a bit of both like the collection I'm working on now that's not 
yet published. Um, I just kind of started writing mm-hmm. that. And I think it's been like three years since I haven't even like broached the topic of it being published anywhere yet. And I think I've just been like really compiling a lot of poems over three years. So by the time I put it in a collection, I probably have to shape it more than like putting it mm-hmm. into like a format, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So last night I was, as I was uh, preparing, I wrote a little homage, if you will, uh, to you and, <laughs> It's not really. A, it's just more like my my statement about what I kind of got from after reading Sex and Ghosts. Um, so I see at the foundation, um, Joanna is, is uh, expresses her humanness or being human uh, in the power source of um, analysis and bringing to the foreground issues of ongoing struggles with gender identification and and uh, sexual expression through the experimentation and um, the of like their poetic experimentation and. Um, empowering and empowerment of marginalized um, and otherwise silenced communities uh, who disrupt um, the neat narratives of clean and clean talking points of those in power. I think I really, for me, at least when I was a reader, I would I get out of it. So I think the question is, what, do, what does being human mean to you? And what does, what does that really mean? Yeah. <laughs> we, we're yeah. starting with yeah. the small questions yeah. today. I, see. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, no, that's a great question, honestly, especially because it is so like prominent in that book. I think for me is like being human is just allowing yourself to feel because I think especially right now, like with social media, I feel like so many people just coast through life and don't really process their emotions or like they're so concerned with like the next step that we're not really living in the present moment anymore and I feel like being present being mindful and aware of your emotions and like being empathetic is a huge part of what differentiates humans from other animals because all animals can feel things to various extents and like have some kind of identity even if they're not conscious about it because every animal has like that instinct to self-preserve and survive where I think humans, like we can actually feel empathy and like want to help other people. Not that animals don't have that because animals can do that too. But I do think there's like a specific type of consciousness that people have. But I also think people are kind of throwing it away in like the given moment. I mean, like I know I'm guilty of it. Like if you're just scrolling through your Instagram and like talking to a million people and like chat and stuff, like are you really actually like processing and feeling your emotions or like you also just concern like with writing a good tweet or like living some life as opposed to like really living it because you're on living an image rather than living a life exactly like you're living this version or persona of yourself and it seems like that's also apropos to things like gender identity where we're expected to live a certain version of what society wants from us based on labels Mm. um one thing that i wanted to ask you uh in terms of struggling with identity issues we all that word struggle comes (laughs) to the fore and is obviously um a huge deal but can can you talk a little bit about revelations or breakthroughs or the um i i guess the empowering moments of not identifying as one thing or another but finding an aspect of yourself through this struggle so kind of yes there's a struggle but what do we also learn what are the bright moments in that struggle sure i think for me like my it kind of was a slow sort of realization Mm -hmm. which I think is probably the case for many people especially 
people who didn't grow up with social media, like I didn't grow up with that. And I think the language for like identifying as something like gender wise, really like is such a modern thing that's happened. And I would say in the last five years, not even the last 10 years. And I like grew up in New York and went to art school and like no one in my art school had the language for any of these things. But I think there was a period of time like around my mid 20s to later 20s, like a few years ago, where I think I just it dawned on me that like none of it really matters. I think like the freedom that I gave myself and like just letting myself dress the way I wanted and not even have to worry about like, do I dress like more androgynous or like, do I have to change like my style or like, what do I say to people? And I think just that freedom just like let me really feel truly myself because I think for me the point of it all is like the fluidity because I think you know our I our identity changes so often and I don't want to be the same person in like 10 years anyway um so I think it's it's kind of complicated in that sense but I think there is like a freedom for me in almost not identifying Mm -hmm. as anything but also being able to say like no this binary doesn't work for me because I do think like there is something that can be like hard to break away from especially with social media because I even think within the queer community sometimes you're performative within that Mm -hmm. framework well I think there that we're we may sort of be approaching a time where something important happens where people can care and inquire without judging so the idea all of this language uh, and I teach at CUNY and a lot of a lot of my students are very open-minded but still are uncomfortable with the language and I feel like we're just starting to get to the point where there's the community of those who identify as non-binary or in other quote unquote atypical ways you know as far as um I I think that I hope that it's becoming strong enough where um the questions that we ask are oftentimes to spread knowledge rather than to put additional labels on. And I, well, I hope that's where we're going with these things where it can be a conversation that enlightens everybody without making people feel judged. Yeah. And I think that, um, late, one of the, one of the follow-up questions about that that I written down was, uh, uh, labels and identities, you know, they can have a double-edged sword, you know, that they both empower, but also limit and sometimes, um, you know, restrict. So, uh, our possibilities or our freedom, and in what ways do you experience both uh, or both of these edge, edges? Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's an excellent question because I do think a lot of people actually even steer clear from that because mm-hmm. they just want to see the like new labels as being freeing and like kind of all encompassing. And I don't think that's actually true. I do think there is something to be said that like sometimes when you have too many things or you're too didactic about the language, it can like box you in. Because I think on one hand, like on like the binary term, Like I often meet people and they just like automatically will assume I'm a woman, which I don't really even care because I'm not super like dogmatic about what people think about me. Mm. And I also know that I appear as like super feminine. And like, of course, I would understand like why someone will assume that I'm a woman. But it's just kind of funny because I do often feel like in social situations, like do I go along with that or do I like actually say something and I think you know most of the time I go along with it I think because I just sort of feel like I don't really care enough to always have a conversation I know it's not my job to like educate people right. 
But I also think there's a freedom in just letting someone, especially if they don't know me very well, like just decide who I am. Mm. So I think for me, there's actually that freedom where if they just like talk to me and just like have their own judgments. Like, like I this is how prefer. I'm experiencing you at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. And I think sometimes like I realize like that's more freeing than just like having a label because I do think then like when you get into that dialogue, which I think is a valuable thing to get into, it can also be like, limiting because then people are like oh i had no idea and then like they start to see you or try to see you in this other way and then i think that becomes limiting too especially even like when you're talking with people who are very well versed in the queer community i do think sometimes they're like well you're non-binary but you're femme but like have you ever been something else and i think sometimes i'm like i was something else yesterday and i'll be something else tomorrow (laughs) exactly and like i was like that's the point of me not being non-binary like i used to have like very short hair and look like a lot more stereotypically like butch quote unquote or like more like a lesbian and I say these things in quotes just because I think it's silly that like looking a certain way automatically means Mm. anything and I just think because I've had these like wide array of like people reacting to me I also know it's so silly because I've been Mm. the same person the whole time now uh, and I think that this whole conversation also raises more nuanced questions like you said um, people see me as a woman because I look feminine. And then there's the whole difference of does what is it to be a woman? Sure. And mm-hmm. does femininity actually have anything to do with sex or mm-hmm. gender or is femininity something that can apply to, you know, any aspect of humanity? Or even if you look at many languages, like words themselves are gendered. But sure. what yeah. does it mean to be feminine or masculine and do these things can these things become sort of neutral adjectives where we can say, yes, I guess the idea of um, wearing shiny, pretty things is feminine, but everybody can own that. I, I don't know. Yeah. This is me thinking sure. out loud, yeah. but I do think it's it it's good to raise nuances about the idea that there is no such thing as just being a man or being a woman. That's yeah. like saying that love always means one thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's actually really what I believe is like, I don't think feminine or masculine traits are gendered. I think right. we're just structured to believe these things. And I think it's just a fact of like, how do you prefer to like, you know, present yourself? And I think everyone has these qualities. It's just like, what do you allow to come right. out? So that's also why I feel like the labels for me sometimes can actually be more overwhelming at times because I'm like, well, what does it even mean anyway? Like, I just happen to like to dress in dresses as opposed to something else. But that could also change. I mean, I think people like David Bowie are great examples of like being chameleons. And like, you know who David Bowie is, even if you don't know what era David Bowie, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I kind of always like looked at David Bowie as like a way for me to understand like my own gender identity because also gender and like sex identities are so different and like you know you can like be non-binary but then like only really want to be with men or women or you know all like genders and I think you know it's not a one-size-fits-all it's not rules yeah no mm-hmm. I just want to say I think that uh one thing I persistently tried to attack and dismantle is the hive mind and the and the tribalism that you know from in my own experience you know as as identifying as a man that now I, that the the obligation to like you know oh i have to now defend all men or i have to like you know i have some tribalism towards men's issues but mm-hmm. i mean i think that there i mean definitely when i support an issue but i need to independently assess and verify i'm not going to blindly be like oh i support 
you know, all these things or, or be identifying as, you know, the quote unquote Indian American, sure. all these kinds of things, all, you know, that now I'm going to, I have to blindly support everyone who mm-hmm. identifies in that way. I think that tribalism or that obligation is also something we're trying to dismantle and kind of being gender fluid or, or dismantling. For sure. Yeah. And I think that's actually like also a big dark side to social mm. media too, because I think it does encourage like tribalism or like a kind of group think where you kind of go along with the crowd because you don't want to be seen as different. You don't want someone to like call you like sexist or racist for having some kind of different opinion. I mean, of course I do think some things are kind of like black and white, so yeah. to speak in the sense like some like racism and sexism can be like easy to suss out, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's nuanced or sometimes you just have different opinions about different things that aren't even necessarily relating to that. And I do think the whole like, really sussing something out and thinking for yourself is a valuable thing that's kind of going out the window a little bit. Cause I also think people just get very frustrated when they feel like someone's not agreeing with them. And instead of just having like a thoughtful debate, they have this like horrible interaction where like, I feel like people don't come out of it any smarter. They're just more defensive. And then like, even more firmly rooted in whatever opinion they have, even if they could have like probably been swayed in either direction or even just have more of an open mind. Cause I think for me, like I'm such like, I'm really in like the feminist sphere and like the queer community, but I think like, even so, like I'm always going to be part of those communities and often probably agreeing with a lot of the thought that's in those communities. I think at the same time, it's not like I agree with every single thing someone says but i think it's a little scary when like people don't realize that they're just kind of going along with the tide so to speak can i I, oh sorry i was gonna say also with isms or it's and such Mm -hmm. questioning that and being able to understand that you know we express or we allow these energies to flow through us and that i wrote down about feminism you know the modalities that i've heard in recent years Really, because when I was in college, you know, my approach and feminist approach and uh, to reading texts and to the alliance between feminism and Marxism and, and gender race class were very different from what I hear in the media sure. today. Those, those sound like yeah. collegeisms, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> true, but that was the first time I really was introduced to it as a, as a system of thought. Sure. And then now I'm exposed to it as being just about equality. But I think that it's about dismantling. And my understanding has always been that the patriarchy and how we have to stop the identification uh, and, um, you know, even for white men or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they, they can't be like, oh, it's against me, but rather against the patriarchy and the systems and the and the persistent um, bias that is propagated through media and, and through dissemination information. So distinguishing that. Yeah. Can yeah, I? That's yeah. a, that's so what I was going to ask, because yeah. I know that um, you're also interested in discussing the idea of sexual assault and abuse sure. um, and building yeah. on the idea of this hive mind and people thinking together. I find one sort of issue that gets gets me in trouble is the idea of believing the victim because in I'm for, obviously, sure, <laughs> yeah. of course. But the idea, the the fact is that there has been a culture, a hive, of not believing the victim. Sure. And yeah. I, the pushback that I've been getting is, oh, well, isn't believing the victim mm. just saying somebody is guilty, and I, or that that yeah. the person being yeah. accused is guilty, and I feel like this is sort of one opportunity to talk about the idea of. 
can we have a hive mind of compassion? Sure. And the idea of saying that just like, yeah, obviously we're attacking the patriarchy and not an individual white man still like white men need to be like, yeah, we white men have done shitty things and men in general need to kind of say, yeah, we have had this power and whether we know it or not, we've abused it. And there kind of needs to be some room for, in some cases, the benefit of the doubt needs to come before um, sort of the idea of, uh, I don't know, I, I guess we need to shift our perspective on judgment in a I way. I think so, yeah. yeah. Because the idea of recognizing and believing a victim first is the only way to actually protect victims rather than making the process of coming forward an attack and violation in and of itself. Sure. Because I, who wants to go through no that? One. You know, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the whole idea of yeah. like, oh, well, why didn't this person come forward sooner? It's like, because it fucking sucks. Like, yeah, who wants yeah. to go through that if you don't have to? And being yeah. asked like what you were wearing or if you're drinking and all of these things already, like put the onus and the blame right. on the victim, even though it's like the choice is about whether or not to assault someone. And yeah. no one wants to really think like there's a clear difference between like maybe you put yourself in a bad position but also like the person with you has to make the choice to abuse you well and it's yeah. not even that no one no one goes to the person accused and said well how much tall how, how much bigger were you than than she was how intimidating were you yeah. did you control the situation did you pick the signals wrong they always yeah. ask the victim like well yeah. why didn't you fight back what were you doing what were your signals and it, the it becomes it's also a strange area in our, I guess, justice system mm-hmm. where the victim is guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. yeah. And it really needs to be reevaluated. And I don't know. I th- I think to a certain extent, the idea of we have to look at what is the the group that needs more protection. Sure. Yeah. So, no, I think that's definitely. I, I just wanted to, point. you know, after yeah. after yeah. the weekend and yeah. everything, I just I just thought I, I got in a fight with somebody at a liquor store. Oh no! About because it was when oh, when she uh, when Collins was on, and I was just like, oh no! And I have my bottle of wine in one <gasps> hand and my cat ear headphones in the other hand, and I'm like freaking out. And this dude is kind of like saying, oh well, you know, at at least Kavanaugh's being vindicated. I'm like. Oh my oh god! god. Yes. <laughs> like, that whole thing ah, is very triggering. That's yeah. awful. But let's yeah. return to the poetry. <laughs> Sorry. Let's try to not, I try to avoid getting yeah, too into no, no. I just sure, just because uh, we were yeah. talking about the idea of what kind of opinions can we have where we default to something, and I, mm. whereas so I was just kind of saying like the idea of default opinions can sometimes be dangerous, oh, but yeah, sure. the idea of a de- default opinion that is compassionate. We're yeah. definitely changing the conversation. I think right. whenever we have these conversations, mm-hmm. we're moving it towards where we want it to be. And, and poetry uh, does that and, yeah, too. Yeah, poetry so does that too. It allows <laughs> that experimental space. Yeah. Yes. That, uh, that space for us to express. So why don't we talk a little bit about language and how you use language and experimentation to be able to create a space for the expression and the, and the manifestation of these emotional life. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So uh, about also about the way it's presented on the page. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, I think, you know, for me, this is also sort of what I was like getting into before where like every collection I write has like the different rule book for like the structure and the language. And I think, you know, in Sex and Ghosts, like the best way that I can describe it is I kind of wanted to 
to use ugly language, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like a lot of the images were not like pretty. Like I talk about like really grotesque images and like compare things a lot to like, you know, something, anything from like vomit to like yeah. snakes to, you know, like people getting like, you know, beat up outside a bar. Like I have all of these different scenes and like you know even just like images of sexual assault and you know Mm. things of that nature so i think i really focus on that because i think i wanted to really explore like the sides of life that people really don't want to get into because it's uncomfortable and it's unsettling or we just like try to gloss over a lot of like the more you know grotesque things or the you know nuanced things that happen to us and so for me i also tried to do a lot of like weird things where I was using language in a somewhat, but I would say unnatural way. Like it's not following like the grammar rules perfectly, Mm. or I like take things a little out of context or like have these speakers who are kind of having somewhat like strange thoughts that don't always appear conversational. And I kind of do that on purpose, like especially in the interview section where like I ask a question as like the interviewer and then like the mother, daughter, or father, or whoever is answering kind of answers in this surreal way where they never actually answer the question. It's yeah. always like this indirect response. And I do that on purpose because I think we learn a lot through what's not being said yeah. a lot of the times. So I know we, we've had musicians on before, and at yeah. a certain point, we usually ask them for a song. Would would you yeah. read us um, something from me? It doesn't have to be representative of anything we've been talking about, but would you just, uh, could you choose something to read for us? Of course. Thank you. Um, so actually, while I was talking, I was thinking about um, this poem called God of Thunder Divorces, God of Lightning. And I like that one. Yeah, yeah really I'll like just read it because yeah. I think it, it good, good, does yeah. a lot of like what I'm talking about. Yeah. Down a little bit. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) God of Thunder divorces God of Lightning. God of Thunder sends email at 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thousands of graves were broken into yesterday. Nothing can be saved. I keep drinking coffee so I can wait for rain. Where did this past year go? Where have you been? God of Lightning feeds Tamagotchi, replies to God of Thunder at 2.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. My Volkswagen was hit by tornado, been frightfully busy, no time to even make dinner. Our rose garden is blooming, mostly only the white ones. We have become virgins. God of Thunder paces around bedroom for five minutes, replies at 2.35 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're too hot-handed. No one wants to see half-grown flowers and rows like dead cars. I can't stop thinking about all those graves. God of Lightning eats Godiva chocolate, sends email in response at 2.38 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. My little sister just sent me a text. She got laid by some guy at a crust punk show. She said the room tasted like old library books. The couch was in the shape of a chalice. The man did not speak. I wish we still fuck like that, like crocodiles standing still on telephone wires. 
God of Thunder masturbates to a picture of Ava Gardner, replies at 2.55 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. My apartment is too hot. All my windows are open. Why have we never gone to Mardi Gras? You drew so many portraits of your mother. I still have them stuffed in drawers, 567 different versions. Yes, I counted in 1997. We got lost on each other. Now scientists can control the weather. God of Lightning responds to God of Thunder via iPhone at 3.04 a.m. Eastern Standard Time lies in dark. You know, I never keep sketches. I can't live in my own body with all that paper. It's like making love and then falling asleep and come and waking up in an abandoned church like my body doesn't want to keep spinning like wagon wheels trying to catch up with a horse. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Yeah. And I think it, it, um, the idea of the gods presented that way is very interesting because, uh, coming from a Buddhist perspective, you know, they talk about the gods, even, even the gods being chopped in this cycle of suffering. And I think that perfectly expresses it also with the, the gods are dead and, and how grounding it in kind of the human or the samsaric experience of the sure. experience of suffering and how they're also trapped in that they may have, you know, I don't know. What What is your thoughts on that? Or what about, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I, I grew up pretty religious. Like my parents are Greek Orthodox and like super Christian. And they sent me to Catholic school for like 13 years. Yeah. So I was always like really kind of obsessed with like what it, like what gods were or God, you know, in Christianity. Um, I never really believed it to be honest. Like, I don't know why I just didn't, but I was so afraid of it. Like I was afraid of going to hell and like, you know, having something terrible happen. And I think just as I got older and really studied a lot of other religions and had friends and partners of varying faiths, I think I just really kind of dismantled that idea of like Christianity and really was thinking like, if there are all of these you know, different forces around us, because I do think there is something in the universe beyond us. And I, I do believe that. And I think for me, it's not necessarily like one entity and it's not necessarily even like this all knowing God. And I was just kind of wondering if there's like these energies, but they're more like us in certain ways and they have like emotions and feelings. I think a lot of the ways that like I was raised to believe in God was that it was this like perfect being that like did everything right. And Nothing was wrong. And I think even just like reading Greek myths, which I did a lot as a kid, like the gods are pretty, you know, like complicated. Like yeah. they act really terrible to each other. There's all this turn people into cows and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, honestly, like what happens if it was really more like that? And I think also if we're emulating what's in the universe, we're like having a conversation and a dialogue with all of these different energies. It's coming from somewhere. So I think that's kind of what has always like inspired me and what I'm kind of always obsessed with in even, general. Even within the Judeo Christian tradition, uh, there's a, if you go back to the original texts, I mean, uh, there's a lot of uh, strands of that. Oh, sure. You know, and something you pull up with uh, Marys of the Sea, you know, you pull up a lot of the uh, those strands and yes. and talk a little bit about um, kind of how the two Marys. Uh, yeah, I've for sure. About that, I yeah. mean, because God's super angry in the yeah. Old Testament. Yeah, exactly. It's like heavy metal God, basically. And, and then there's like Job and oh, yeah. burning bushes yeah. and drowning the world and stuff. Sometimes shit doesn't work out too well with no. that perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. at all. Yahweh's temperament is also put into question. Like, how, oh, he, yeah. how he suddenly floods the world and 
Uh, you know, he's like, oh, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to kill you all. Exactly. You know, like, Come on now. And he's like, oh, actually, let's make up, you know. I'll, sure. I'll, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that for me has always been fascinating. Like, there's this being with so much power and like, how do they use it? How does it navigate? I mean, which also kind of goes into what you were saying before with, you know, sexual assault and those dynamics. And I think, you know, even just thinking about gods in that way, like there is this very weird power dynamic that you kind of have to think about to some extent. I think I was really just thinking, especially in the modern age, like how does that all play out now? You know, and how does that relate to us with technology now that we're kind of becoming these weird, more powerful beings? Because like with technology, we can do a lot more than like just with our own physical bodies. Or omnipresent. Yeah. And also exactly you have uh, in in the interview at the back of Mary's of the Sea, you talk about Paul as being a type of prophet. Mm-hmm. So I thought that's really interesting. What, the way you're recontextualizing the word prophet, usually sure. it's, it's uh, typically thinking about, you know, telling the will of God, but you're using it in, in another, in a more secondary meaning. So you're sure. talking a bit about his prophet and such. Yeah. So what does that mean to you? I think I had a, uh, another secondary meaning written down, but we could talk about. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like being an artist of any kind, not even just like a poet necessarily, like hopefully what you're doing is, kind of seeing like the cultural landscape that you currently live in and where you came from and then pulling out what other people don't see and hopefully educating people about like the inequalities or what needs to change to make like our life experiences better, more fulfilling and what I would say like more equal. And I think that's what any good artist does is they see what other people don't and then they contextualize it in a way that we can relate to and hopefully learn from and i think that in for me is kind of like being a prophet Mm. in some way where it's like you're hopefully leading people into this better future that's like more self-aware and everyone's you know hopefully living these better lives and i think that's like the function of the prophet in religion is that they're usually tunneling some kind of like higher being to like guide people into some kind of direction yeah and, and also, I, yeah I have the definition of the secondary definition written down a person who uh, speaks with a visionary in a visionary way about a new belief cause or theory uh but you know there's nothing new really but you're sure. bringing together in a visionary way at least uh some kind of the beliefs you're channeling the beliefs and the and the causes and the kind of alternate theories so yeah well, oh yeah. yeah whenever we talk about possibilities though we all have the opportunity of growing into those possibilities mm. and being visionary and looking toward the future i think the difference between um prophecy and just going through everyday life mm. might just be uh empowering oneself to realize the visions that we create or even showing um the possibility for uh visions of a future we should avoid sure and those kinds of things um the dynamic of being inspired and empowered and afraid and cautious and carefree all of these things that art evokes help us to shape a future and envision the future we want exactly yeah i think that kind of sums it up yeah and and also it's like uh, to borrow some language i took this landmark forum course Mm-hmm. which is basically kind of some derivative of Scientology, but not to get into that topic, but just to get into, <laughs> just to get into some of the language they talked about, about how, uh, and it kind of connects a little bit with my understanding of the Vedantic and the, and the, and the Buddhist philosophy, but we all have this already seeing, already we're kind of programmed to see things that, that we, you know, we're not really seeing mm-hmm. what's in front of our face sometimes. Sure. And we're already hearing what's, you know, what we're already hearing and we're not hearing what's 
was actually being said, not seeing the reality. So seeing clearly really is a form of vision, a visionary, and being able to understand that the changing terrain and be able to see the signs of the changing terrain is really what prophecy is just seeing clearly. You oh, know? sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, a professor I had said something very interesting to me once because I took a class actually on the Bible as a literary text when I was mm. an undergrad. And he was explaining like what prophets were to some extent. And he was saying that it's much harder to read the present moment than it is to predict the future or even talk about the past. And I think that's so true. And that's kind of really how I think about so many things is like being more present. Like how can we better understand our present to have a better future? Because I think so many people are like so concerned with like, I got to do this for the future. Like what's Mm -hmm. my future? And it's like, you're not really going to have one if you're not like, fully in this and invested in this moment yeah i so if if i saw correctly when um vj was sending me some information about your interests um something about uh the plights of the mentally ill yeah and whenever we talk about prophets or visions or things like that i'm a writing therapist Mm -hmm. and i advocate for the mentally ill and i don't know to me that's the one universally marginalized population that it you know affects every single facet of humanity but um in terms of the mentally ill as either um a group to protect or inspiration or a a group that has shaped your life or Mm -hmm. if if that has touched your life personally how do you use how, how do you approach that topic in your art or just in life and advocacy sure no, I think that's so important because it's so stigmatized even today. Like, we would lock up, we would yeah. institutionalize the profit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think for me, like I, I try to write about it as much as possible because I've dealt with my own, you know, experiences with it. And I think just even writing, like I write some nonfiction essays and like kind of memoir-esque pieces. And I think just for me being as honest as possible as I can be, like say, for example, about like, my body dysmoria that I've always dealt with or like anything like anxiety and depression. And I think that helps just connect other people to each other and like destigmatize it because I, I have had people like write to me and say like, Oh my God, thank you for this piece. And I never even thought like anyone would read it or like Mm -hmm. find meaning in it. But I think like for me, it's just about being honest with our stories and not trying to, like lost things over or sugarcoat them because I think the more people that like stand up with their stories hopefully will change perception because unfortunately I don't think there's really any other way to do it Mm -hmm. other than just like continuing to push for that because I think that's why therapy has gotten a bit more destigmatized I would say in a lot of ways and people don't look at it the same like in the 50s like no one Mm -hmm. would ever admit to it I mean people like that yeah. just wasn't something right. you did. Yeah. Whereas no. I think now people talk more openly about it. Also to pull a little bit from the language you use, because I think in the essay, suicidal ideation and who we allow to be real. Uh, and you say language is in all its myriad forms. It's too important and too precious for us to be sloppy with. And it's in the simplest forms, language is used to communicate, you know, to allow lost animals to survive. I think it's so mm. important because language is, and, and someone, as someone who, uh, Chris rarely studied Wittgenstein and how mm-hmm. the, the problem of language and how we can't access other people's experiences sure. but through language. Yes. And I just, I can't, I just, it feels so powerful to be able to hear that and be able to, you know, emphasize that and 
how language is so important yeah no i think yeah, it is because yeah. i think it's easy to kind of like dislanguage and be like oh man like you can only get certain experiences because i'm the first one to be like language is limiting like we can yeah. only also like translate our own emotions into the language that we have which is really just an image-based symbol right. and then someone else hopefully understands but at the same time all of if we think of language almost like a sense Mm. There is a limitation to the uh, efficacy of anything. Our sure. vision is what limited. Right. Every, yeah. All of our perception. And I think one of the beautiful things about language and something that I use in my therapy is the possibility for revision. Yes. And to me, this also has to do with identity and the fact that the ultimate freedom is being able to change one's mind. Yes. And being accepted for that. So when we, I think we truly know somebody, not when we cement them for who they are but when we are open to who they were who they are and who they will be exactly and we give everybody the opportunity to say something and then change one's mind mm. literally changing one's yeah, mind yeah. through revision you mentioned something about uh what is imaginary is brought into the real through language i think mm -hmm. i, I, I yes. don't remember exactly where it was but uh that really nailed it for me like you know we're not just speaking empty words we're mm -hmm. bringing into reality in the beginning in the beginning there was the unimaginable word. yeah exactly yeah it's really really powerful because i think in my interpretation of that is that the word distinguishes in our minds it actually creates sure you no know, it that, does yeah and it creates what is imagine unimaginable to the imaginary to the real yeah i mean it's how we identify like most of our own identities come from these imagined realities that we have in our heads because i mean you know, I love Klimt paintings. I love like jazz and Rachmaninoff mm -hmm. and like all these things. So like I've like fashioned myself in a way where like I can emulate what I like to some degree. And I think, you know, so much of like who we are stems from just like our own personal private thoughts. Like we aren't just like who we were in third grade or, you know, college or at the job that you're at. Because like that would make us such simple one dimensional people. And I think mm -hmm. the fact that we have hidden desires like desires are intangible you know like they're our imaginations but mm. we bring them to life through words and then through that we can like you know when we meet other people we can like hopefully actually make some of these like desires or wants real it, uh one of my favorite quotes that appears on pretty much every syllabus i've ever written is uh joan didion we tell ourselves stories in order to live exactly and the idea that we are the story in the progress of the telling Yes. Yeah, and also another quote you always use: "A mastery of the self is mastery uh, of language." Yeah. Yeah, the ability to think for oneself yeah. depends upon one's mastery of the language. Yeah, and I can't so believe you remember true. that. Yeah, yeah that, that really that really connected with me because I think that uh, you know in the Buddhist That's practice of Lojong and <laughs> and the training of the mind is is comes through not just verbal language, also just the language and the systems that language oh, supports. Sure. Yeah. So um, yeah. So then um, as we start to wind down. Uh, we, we have a few more minutes and then um, we can talk a little bit more about just tying together thoughts or how sure. can I ask you with you? Go ahead. Yeah. Any connecting thoughts or final thoughts? Anything you want to promote or? Or any any uh, advice for the writers out there? I would yeah. like to throw that in. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, tying together thoughts, especially with like advice for other people, I think really for me is just like getting it down, you know, and not necessarily feeling like, you have to write at the same time every day or that like you have to feel bad for not. And I mean, I think for me, like my process is like really simple. Like I just write notes to myself on the subway or when I'm walking or doing anything. 
And I think just like the fact that I, I let myself take a break and pause and like do that keeps it fresh. So then when I go back to it, even if I didn't have time to like write that day, I can remember that moment and it's unfiltered and it's not edited. Cause I think sometimes like when we make like, okay, like this schedule of I'm going to write for an hour today, like you edit yourself because you also want that hour to be super productive. And I think just like not setting like necessarily like word counts, you know, I think that can be valuable if you do need to get a novel done in like a year or something. (laughs) But like, I do think if you're just really trying to be honest and write something truthful, I think you have to let it come a little bit naturally, like have a schedule, write for 15 minutes a day, but like, don't make yourself like feel like it's a job because then once it feels like a job, then you're like anxious about it and you don't want to do it. And then you're like lying to yourself, Mm -hmm. I think. And I think just like letting yourself be a little bit more raw about it. I think that's where honestly a lot of my best lines came from because it was just something I thought on the subway and then I just like wrote it in my phone and then that was it. There's a lot of opportunity for raw, gritty, unfiltered language on the I subway. Think so. yeah. <laughs> I think so. Or I think so. You know, on, in a coffee shop, I'm, yeah. I'm just like, what sounds nice? Right. Yeah. Also, I'm hearing from what your uh, writing says is that being tr- really truthful, reconnect to that source is where you get the energy and not uh, you know, a lot of times we're talking about teams about internalization of the critic and internalization of others, what we perceive others to feel sure. or all this kind of thing and silencing that and really listening to your heart and your, and your, the language that flows through you through just not mm-hmm. judging no, that. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think that's so important. And I think part of it is like, I'm such an observer and a listener that I really like take everything in kind of like a sponge, which I think actually makes it easier for me. Cause I'm not really always trying to even put my own filter on it. I'm just trying to like, report something to witness basically yes mm. to testify or witness or bear witness yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah all right so i'll read a few thank you so much thank, I'll thank read you a few things uh about radio free brooklyn radio Free brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to a comedian for media literacy we're here to connect the community to um uh allow or permit voices to be heard we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us to continue to stay on air. So please support independent community radio by pledging whatever you can afford. All uh, do- contributions are tax deductible to the full extent of law. And uh, let, let me see. Uh, then also... Um, uh, yeah, I'll play a song just to let us out. Yeah. And uh, do you check also- out um, uh, VJ's social and Rockway Writers for more information on the free events and readings? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 